Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. The coronavirus. You have the media and the Democrats, one and the same, on a, a lie, a big lie that they're repeating over and over again, that the President of the United States didn't act fast enough, that he has no plan. And I sit here and I think to myself, tell me, when did the Democrats and the media get interested in the coronavirus? This week? Was it this week, Mr. Producer, that Chuck Schumer went to the floor of the Senate and began his propaganda campaign against the president trying to link the coronavirus to Donald Trump? This week, right? Wasn't last week. Wasn't last month. Wasn't two months ago. And the media have done the same thing. Now notice, ladies and gentlemen, members of Congress like to talk about their authority. Their authority when it comes to appropriations, declarations of war, their oversight authority, their legislative authority. Well, tell me, when the United States Congress was focused on a coup against the President of the United States, how much time did Congress spend on the coronavirus. How many hearings did Congress have on the coronavirus at the same time they were trying to oust the President of the United States? How many hearings? I would ask my friends who claim to be constitutionalists when it comes to war powers, what about areas where there's no debate? Congress has the absolute authority to appropriate funds, as many funds as they want, to address the coronavirus, whether the president signs it or not. Where's the bill? Is there a bill that came out of the House of Representatives? For the last two months, ladies and gentlemen, how many press conferences did Nancy Pelosi have warning America about the coronavirus. She's had a few press conferences this week trashing the president, trying to link him to the coronavirus. How many shows were done on the coronavirus other than hit and run programs on China and so forth? On CNN? On MSNBC? On the networks? Few, if any. Few, if any. 
Now they're arguing over money. Chuck Schumer says it ought to be $8 billion, million or something like that. Kevin McCarthy says closer to $4 billion. President of the United States says, let's start with $2.5 billion. If the President of the United States had said $8.48 billion, Chuck Schumer would have said $18.48 billion. Chuck Schumer doesn't have a grasp on anything that's going on in the United States, in the federal government, to address the coronavirus. He hasn't participated in this hearing. Not one. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's the thing. As good as a president may be, as good as his cabinet may be, as good as our scientists may be, those who work in the private sector and those who work in the government sector. Mother Nature can be a real bastard. You can't stop the flu in the United States. You can try to address it. Even when you get a flu shot, it only covers a certain number of flu varieties. Nothing can be fixed perfectly. And this is what the Democrats do with the media support. They know the president has a rather sophisticated plan. They know that this virus drew the attention of the president early on. They know the president appointed a blue ribbon group to address this. They know the CDC... HHS generally, NIH, and all the others are working feverishly on this. They know that our pharmaceutical companies are working feverishly, including with each other, to try and find some kind of anecdote. They know all this. But they also know that perfection is impossible. That there will be people who get this. And there will be people who die. As with the flu. And other viruses. What's happening here, we touched on this yesterday, is diabolical. Everything the Democrats touch is the Democrat Party holding power Gaining power. Holding power, gaining power. And they have concluded that the way to hold power and gain power is to burn down everything in front of you. Everything. What exactly have the leading Democrats in Congress done to address the coronavirus other than lately throw out the figure of multi-billions of dollars. What exactly have they done? They control the House of Representatives. What have the relevant committees of the House done? Nothing. They haven't done anything. Nothing. And so they sit back 
and attack the president. Let me make another suggestion to you. The Trump administration has been subjected to an overwhelming number of subpoenas, investigations, taking up an enormous amount of manpower and resources to respond to. Every department, every agency. When this administration could be doing other things, the Democrats in Congress, especially in the House, and the Democrats in the media, have sought to distract us and to distract the administration. We've talked about this over and over and over again. What is the purpose exactly of the Democrat Party? What exactly is the purpose of the Democrat Party? I'm asking you. To make life better? Not if you're an unborn baby. They don't even believe you're a baby. Not if you're a newly born baby who was supposed to be aborted. We'll get to that later in the program. Ben Sass had a hell of a speech on the floor of the Senate. Not if you're elderly. Bloomberg, Sanders, Obama, the rest. They believe you reach a certain age and that's it. Society, quote unquote, shouldn't spend any more money on your health care. And you shouldn't be able to, even if you have the funds. What is it exactly that the Democrat Party stands for? Bankrupting the country? Eviscerating the Constitution? Eliminating citizenship? Destroying the market system? Impovering, impoverishing us? What does the Democrat Party stand for? Education? No. Indoctrination and propaganda. Health care? No. They don't believe in health care. It's a right, don't you know? They believe in government insurance, not quality health care. What exactly does the Democrat Party stand for? Chuck Schumer goes to the floor of the Senate and attacks the president on the coronavirus. Nancy Pelosi does the same. These committees of Congress have access to the bureaucrats and the experts in the federal government. They determine how much money is going to be spent. And they've done absolutely nothing. Nothing. We have, as a perfect example, this guy Tom Steyer. Guy's a nut. He's a nut. But he's asked today on CNN by Alison Camerata, speaking of nuts, cut to go. What would President Steyer yes. do this morning about coronavirus? Well, let me say this. Let Allison. me just say this. He's going to say nothing except attack Trump. Watch. Go ahead. Mr. Trump is late. He has not understood how dramatic an impact this virus is going to have on the world. It isn't a question of what I should be doing this morning. It's a question of what I should have been doing a month or two ago. 
when in fact it became clear that this was the kind of thing where we needed to send our experts to China to start working on this, that we needed... Ladies and gentlemen, our experts have been working on this from the moment it became known. Experts all over the world have been working on this. That's what's been taking place. Here's what this man can't say. Here's what no Democrat can say. Secure the borders. Make sure we know who's coming into this country. Because they have opposed it from day one. Isn't that one of the things that's important? Not just the ports of entry. People who come into this country. Who avoid the ports of entry because they're coming illegally. What would the Democrats do? They would eliminate the Border Patrol. They would eliminate ICE. They would eliminate vetting. Anybody can come into this country. How would they stop this virus or any virus from coming into the United States? When you have an open borders, open borders policy. What about our health care system? Be overwhelmed. The Democrats believe in health care for illegal aliens. If you have open borders and free health care, the nation will be overwhelmed. We won't be able to deal with crises like the coronavirus or any other virus for that matter. Our systems will implode. They'll be devoured. That's the question of Tom Steyer and the other Democrats. You have no plans but silly comments. More money. Send experts to China. Our experts are all over this. The experts in Australia, England, New Zealand... The experts throughout Europe, they're all on top of this trying to figure it out. It's not so easy. It's just not so easy. And they take no responsibility, these Democrats, for spending three years chasing Russia collusion and then Ukraine collusion when you knew damn well Some event or events would take place. And yet we would be debating the agenda of the Democrats. The agenda of the Democrats. The CDC budget has not been cut. Our budget is exploding in red ink. The president has not vetoed a single budget that's come to him from Congress. He has signed... Congress's budgets, even though he's objected to the amount of money that's being spent, he has signed them. So if there's not adequate funding for the CDC, if there's not adequate funding for the NIH, if there's not adequate funding for the mothership, HHS, that's on Congress. They got all kinds of funding in their budgets. Pork barrel spending taking care of their constituent groups, taking care of their political buddies and their special interests, all kind of funding. How about we hold their feet to the fire? How about we hold Pelosi and the Democrat majority in the House, their feet to the fire? Schumer, his feet to the fire. Politics all the time with these mobsters. So they use this as an opportunity to attack the president who's been trying to secure the border, trying to figure out who's coming into this country. 
who did in fact grab this issue by the throat two months ago? Tom Steyer wasn't talking about it two months ago. Schumer wasn't talking about it two months ago. Pelosi wasn't talking about it two months ago. They were busy in a coup. I'll be right back. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. The president is going to have a news conference addressing this coronavirus issue. And um, as soon as it starts, we'll go live to the news conference. So I want all of our affiliates down the line to be aware of that. We will go live. And we will be right back. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. The one-man antidote for liberal media bias, Mark Levin. Call him now at 877-381-3811. Now, this is rather extraordinary. Prime time, now it's after 6.30 p.m. Eastern time, but just a matter of minutes, really, when the president comes to the podium, surrounded by officials from the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, among others. Apparently, when he was coming back from India, he had said he wanted to be briefed, and now he says, okay, let the whole country be briefed along with me, because I've been on top of this. But you need to understand, and you do, because you've been through this, we've experienced this, you're sophisticated. This won't be enough for the media or the Democrats. It won't matter. It just won't matter. 
If Trump had only done this, if Trump had only done that, and you're going to get this from people who all but ignored the coronavirus when they're trying to get Trump's scalp. But the executive branch is a rather enormous entity. It's got lots of offices and divisions and units who work on matters like this. The hated pharmaceutical companies, which were supposed to nationalize or otherwise destroy, they're the ones working with the federal labs that will come up with solutions here and all over the world. Bernie Sanders won't. Chuck Schumer won't. None of them will. It is amazing when the left demands answers to complicated and difficult matters. They demand answers. The great government is so great it doesn't have any answers. It's going to take private labs working with these various federal entities to actually come up with the answers. That's how we solve polio. That's how we solve most of these these problems. Meanwhile, the attacks on the president are just terrible. Ania Presley, one of these stooges, one of the radical left-wing stooges in Congress, here's what she said on CNN yesterday. Cut through. Uh, their plan is no plan. And uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, we are ill-equipped. You know, you know, here's the thing. We'll continue with her in a minute. Turn to these politicians who hate the president. All right, here's the president. Thank you very much. Before I begin, I'd like to extend my deepest condolences to the victims and families in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Earlier today, a wicked murderer opened fire at a Molson Coors Brewing Company plant, taking the lives of five people. A number of people were wounded, some badly wounded. Our hearts break for them and their loved ones. We send our condolences. We'll be with them. And it's a terrible thing. Terrible thing. So our hearts go out to the people of Wisconsin and to the families. Thank you very much. Uh, I've just received another briefing from a great group of talented people on the virus that is going around to various parts of the world. We have, through some very good early decisions, decisions that were actually ridiculed at the beginning, we closed up our borders to flights coming in from certain areas, uh, areas that were hit by the coronavirus and hit pretty hard. And we did it very early. A lot of people thought we shouldn't have done it that early, and we did, and it turned out to be a very good thing. And the number one priority from our standpoint is the health and safety of the American people. And that's the way I viewed it when I made that decision. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. And we have the greatest experts in the world, really in the world right here. The people that are called upon by other countries when things like this happen. We, uh, we're ready to adapt and we're ready to do whatever we have to as the disease spreads, if it spreads. Uh, as most of you know, the uh, 
the level that we've had in our country is very low, and those people are getting better, or we think that in almost all cases, they're the better are getting. We have a total of 15. We took in some from Japan. You heard about that because they're American citizens and they're in quarantine. Uh, and uh, they're getting better, too. But we felt we had an obligation to do that. It could have been as many as 42. And uh, we found that we were it was just an obligation. We felt that we had we could have left them and that would have been very bad, very bad, I think, American people. And uh, they're recovering. Of the 15 people, the original 15, as I call them, uh, eight of them have returned to their homes, to stay in their homes until fully recovered. One is in the hospital, and five have fully recovered. And uh, one is, uh, we think, in pretty good shape. And it's... uh, in between hospital and going home. So we have a total of, uh, but we have a total of 15 people, and uh, they're in a process of uh, recovering, with some already having fully recovered. Uh, We started out by uh, looking at certain things. We've been working with uh, the Hill very, very carefully, very strongly, and I think we have very good bipartisan spirit for money. We were asking for $2.5 billion, and we think that's uh, a lot, but uh, the Democrats and I guess uh, Senator Schumer wants us to have much more than that. And normally in life, I'd say we'll take it. We'll take it. Uh, if they want to give more, we'll do more. We're going to spend whatever is appropriate. Hopefully, we're not going to have to spend so much because we really think we've done a great job in keeping it down to a minimum. Uh, and again, uh, uh, we've had tremendous success, tremendous success beyond what people would have thought. Now, at the same time, you do have some outbreaks in some countries. Italy and various countries are having some difficulty. China, you know about where it started. I spoke with President Xi. We had a great talk. He's working very hard, I have to say. He's working very, very hard. And uh, if you can count on the reports coming out of China, that spread has gone down quite a bit. Uh, the infection seems to have gone down over the last two days. As opposed to getting larger, it's actually gotten smaller. In one instance where we think uh, we can be it's somewhat reliable, it seems to have gotten quite a bit smaller. Uh, with respect to the money that's uh, being negotiated, uh, they can do whatever they want. I mean, they can, we'll do the two and a half. We're requesting two and a half. Uh, some Republicans would like us to get four, and some Democrats would like us to get eight and a half, and we'll be satisfied whatever whatever it is. We're bringing in a specialist, very highly regarded specialist, uh, tomorrow who works actually at the State Department, very, very uh, tremendously talented in doing this. I want you to understand something that shocked me when I saw it, that uh, I spoke with uh, Dr. Fauci on this, and I was really uh, amazed, and I think most people are amazed to hear it. The flu in our country kills from 25,000 people to 69,000 people a year. That was shocking to me. And uh, so far, if you look at what we have with the 15 people, and they're recovering. One is uh, one is uh, pretty sick, but uh, hopefully will recover. 
but the others are in great shape. But think of that, 25,000 to 69,000. Over the last 10 years, we've lost 360,000. These are people that have died from the flu, from what we call the flu. Hey, did you get your flu shot? And uh, that's something. Now, what we've done is we've stopped non-U.S. citizens from coming into America from China. That was done very early on. We're screening people, and we have been at a very high level, screening people coming into the country from infected areas. We have in quarantine those infected and those at risk. We have a lot of great quarantine facilities. We're rapidly developing a vaccine, and they can speak to you. The professionals can speak to you about that. Uh, the vaccine is coming along well, and in speaking to the doctors, we think this is something that we can develop fairly rapidly, a vaccine for the future, and coordinate with the support of our partners. We have great relationships with all of the countries that we're talking about. Some uh, it's fairly large number of countries. Some it's one person, and uh, many countries have no problem whatsoever. And we'll see what happens. But we're very, very ready for this, for anything, whether it's going to be a uh, breakout of larger proportions or whether or not we're, uh, you know, we're at that very low level. And uh, we want to keep it that way. So we're at the low level. As they get better, we take them off the list so that we're going to be pretty soon at only five people. And we could be at just one or two people over the next short period of time. So we've had very good luck. The um, Johns Hopkins, I guess it is, a highly respected, great place. They did a, stu a, a study, comprehensive, the country's best and worst prepared for an epidemic. And the United States is now, we're rated number one. We're rated number one for being prepared. This is a list of different countries. I don't want to get in your way, especially since you do such a good job. Uh, this is a list of uh, the different countries. United States is rated number one, most prepared. United Kingdom, Netherlands, Australia, Canada, Thailand, Sweden, Denmark, South Korea, Finland. These, this is a list of, of the best rated countries in the world by Johns Hopkins. Uh, we're doing something else that's uh, important to me because he's been uh, terrific in many ways, but he's also very good on health care. And we really followed him very closely. A lot of states do. When Mike was governor, Mike Pence of Indiana, uh, they've established great health care. They have a great system there, a system that a lot, of, a lot of the other states have really looked to and changed their systems. They wanted to base it on the Indiana system. He's very good. And I think, and he's, he's uh, really very expert at the field. And what I've done is I'm going to be announcing... Uh, exactly right now, that I'm going to be putting our Vice President, Mike Pence, in charge. And Mike will be working with the professionals, the doctors, and everybody else that's working. The team is, is brilliant. I spent a lot of time with the team over the last couple of weeks, but they're totally brilliant. And we're doing really well. And Mike is going to be in charge, and Mike will report back to me. But he's got a certain talent for this. And uh, I'm going to ask Mike Pence to say a few words, please. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mr. President. President Trump's made clear from the first days of this administration we have no higher priority than the safety, security, health, and well-being of the American people. 
And from the first word of an outbreak of the coronavirus, the president took unprecedented steps to protect uh, the American people from the spread of this disease. He recounted those briefly, but uh, the establishment of travel restrictions, uh, aggressive quarantine effort of Americans that are returning, the declaration of a public health emergency and establishing uh, the White House Corona Task Force are all reflective of the urgency that the president has brought to a whole-of-government approach. Um, as a uh, former governor uh, from the state where the first MERS case uh, emerged in 2014, uh, I know full well uh, the importance of presidential leadership, the importance of administration leadership, and the vital role of partnerships of state and local governments and health authorities in responding to the potential threat of dangerous infectious diseases. Uh, and I, uh, uh, I look forward, uh, Mr. President, to uh, serving uh, in this role and bringing together uh, all the members of the Corona Task Force that you've established, HHS, CDC, DHS, the Department of Transportation, and State. Uh, this team has been at your direction, Mr. President, meeting every day since it was established. Uh, my role will be to continue to uh, uh, bring that team together, uh, to bring to the President uh, uh, the best options for action, to see to the safety and well-being and health of the American people. Uh, we'll also be continuing to reach out to governors, uh, state and local officials. Uh, in fact, in the recent days, uh, the White House met with over 40 state, county, and city health officials from over 30 states and territories to discuss how to respond uh, to this, uh, to the potential threat of We're the coronavirus. We're going to have to take a brief uh, we'll break, but you can see or you can hear that there's been a lot going on, as a matter of fact, in the early stages of this virus to address it. There have been a total of 15 cases in the United States so far. One person still seriously ill, the others in various levels of recovery. President said if Congress wants to give them eight and a half billion or four billion, whatever it is, they'll take whatever the amount is and they'll spend it. They asked for two and a half billion. So there's really no need for all this politicization, except if you're a Democrat and this is all you know. To burn everything down. I'll be right back. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com.
during the break, I've been listening to this press conference, and it's extremely impressive what this administration has been doing. And it was very important that the president hold this press conference because the Democrats were going full nut job in trying to upset the American people, panic the American people, all for politics. And so you really need to ask yourselves, those of you who are listening, who are on the fence when it comes to this election, seriously, what kind of people do you want in charge of your government? What kind of people do you want? Because the president obviously grabbed this by the throat early on. He put his task force together, and they've been working with state and local governments. They've been working on vaccines. They've been working on uh, uh, more supplies to get out to the... uh, various retail shops and so forth. It's a lot that's been going on in a very short period of time. We will be right back, and if this press conference is continuing, we will be linking right up to it. See you in a minute. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 So far, we know this coronavirus has spread mightily in China, in parts of Asia. You know, we are fortunate, really, to be in such a magnificent country with an ocean on either side, on both coasts. We really are. And to have the neighbors to the north and the south, yes, and the south that we have, What the Democrats are doing here really is diabolical. You know, the President of the United States has really done a great job on this so far. And he ought to get credit for it. He's not a demigod. He can't prevent the virus from spreading into the United States. We're a massive country. We have a lot of people who go into this country and leave this country. Millions a day. We have huge borders. The president's been trying to get those under control, despite the Democrats and some Republicans fighting him. He's been trying to get a vetting system in place to figure out who's coming here and why. The courts have even fought him. He's been trying to get the Food and Drug Administration to more quickly process life-saving and life-extending drugs. He's been doing all the right things. Excuse me. Somebody needs to invent a vaccine for bronchitis, Mr. Producer. But anyway, I'm old enough, and many of you are old enough to know that the Democrats use these these health issues to create health scares. They do it all the time. Now, I'm going to talk about this briefly, and it will be completely misinterpreted by vicious, radical, left-wing propagandists 
who do not have the best interests of the country in mind. They do not. Whether it's war, whether it's health issues, they see politics all the time. There's a pathology in the media and on the left. That is, to frame science in the context of a crisis. We have the climate change crisis. Before that, we had the global warming crisis. Before that, we had the global cooling crisis. But there's always a crisis. Always. And there's always misrepresentation and fear-mongering. Misrepresentation and fear-mongering. You heard that today and yesterday with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And the pathology works something like this. An event occurs. As I wrote about in Liberty and Tyranny 11 years ago. An event occurs. Say food contamination is discovered or instances of a, of a new disease arises. Or as an increasingly the case, government agencies such as the FDA or the CDC or the EPA or nonprofit organizations, the Center for Science and the Public Interest, Sierra Club, release a new study identifying a frightening new health risk. Urgent predictions are made by experts. And the media accepts without skepticism. But here we have urgent predictions made by political hacks, which may or may not come true. Some recent examples of this pathology, and they're numerous, they include scares about ALAR, sweeteners, bird flu, swine flu, dioxins, E. coli, listeria, the Ebola virus, formaldehyde, MTBE, BSE, bovine, you might remember this, spongiform, salmonella, attached to tomatoes and jalapeno peppers, chloro, chlorofluorocarbons, all became huge panics, far beyond the actual scope of any health threat. Now, I'm not saying that the coronavirus is such a thing. Maybe it'll blow up into a massive health threat. But unlike Tom Friedman, who's preached about the greatness of the Chinese autocratic one-party system, we're not China. We're an open society. We have a vibrant private sector. We have brilliant scientists and medical experts who work at, yes, pharmaceutical companies, Labs all over the country work with NIH, the CDC, and other entities within the federal government and state governments. The president tonight has been completely in control, utterly presidential, as he's been talking about this. So let's, let's go back to the president who's speaking now. Go ahead. Wait. Do you feel that U.S. schools should be preparing for a coronavirus spreading? I would think so, yes. I mean, I haven't spoken specifically about that with the various doctors, but I would think so, yes. I think uh, 
every aspect of our society should be prepared. I don't think it's going to come to that, especially with the fact that uh, we're going down, not up. We're going very substantially down, not up. But, yeah, I think schools should be preparing and, you know, get ready just in case. The words are just in case. We don't think we're going to be there. We don't think we're going to be anywhere close. And, again, if you look at some countries, they are coming down and starting to go in the other direction. This will end. This will end. Uh, you look at flu season, I said 26,000 people. I'd never heard of a number like that. 26,000 people going up to 69,000 people, doctor, you told me before. 69,000 people die every year from 26 to 69, every year from the flu. Now, think of that. It's incredible. So far, the results of all of this that everybody's reading about. And and part of the thing is you, you want to keep it the way it is. You don't want to see panic because there's no reason to be panicked about. But when I mentioned the flu, I said, actually, I, I asked the various doctors, I said, is this just like flu? Because people die from the flu. And this is very unusual. And it is a little bit different, but in some ways it's easier and in some ways it's a little bit tougher. Uh, but uh, we have it so well under control. I mean, we really have done a very good job. Go ahead. Thank you, Mr. President. You mentioned the stock market earlier. To go back to that, to be clear, the Dow Jones dropped more than 2,000 points this week. Are you suggesting that that was overblown? Are financial markets overreacting here? I think the financial markets are very upset when they look at the Democrat candidates standing on that stage making fools out of themselves. And they say, if we ever have a president like this, and there's always a possibility. It's an election. You know, who knows what happens, right? I think we're going to win. I think we're going to win by a lot. But when they look at the statements made by the people stand behind, standing behind those podiums, I think that has a huge effect, yeah. It had to do with the coronavirus. No, I think it did. I think it did. But I think you can add quite a bit of sell-off to what they're seeing, because they're seeing the potential. Uh, you know, again, I think we're going to win. I feel very confident of it. Uh, we've done everything and much more than I said we were going to do. You look at what we've done. What we've done is incredible with the tax cuts and regulation cuts and rebuilding our military, taking care of our vets and getting them choice and accountability. All of the things we've done, protecting our Second Amendment. I mean, they view that the Second Amendment. They, they're going to destroy the Second Amendment. When people look at that, they say, this is not good. So you add that in. I really believe that's a factor. But no, this is what we're talking about is is the virus. That's what we're talking about. But I, I do believe that's I do believe in terms of CNBC and in terms of Fox business. I do believe that that's a factor. Yeah. And I think after I win the election, I think the stock market's going to boom like it's never boomed before, just like it did, by the way, after I won the last election. The stock market the day after went up like a rocket ship. At what point would you be considering uh, loosening the travel restrictions regarding China? When we're uh, at a point where we don't have a problem. You know, we're not going to loosen the travel restrictions. That's what saved us. Had I not made, Mike alluded to it, had I not made a decision very early on not to take people from a certain area, we wouldn't be talking this way. We'd be talking about many more people would have been infected. Uh, I took a lot of heat. I mean, some people call me racist because I made a decision so early. Ah, yes. And we had forget. never done that as a country before, let alone early. So it was a you know bold decision. It turned out to be a good decision. He said nobody but from China. He was called a racist. Racist because I made that decision. If you can believe that one, uh, we have to all work together. We can't say bad things, and especially when. We have the best team anywhere in the world, and, and we really gave it an early start. You're going to see Schumer and Pelosi are just going to keep at it. They're not going to want to work together. 
The president is complete control here, cool as a cucumber, totally presidential, because he knows he's taking steps and has been taking steps to address this early on, and he's got his experts in charge. Go ahead. An increased staff. We know all the people. We know all the good people. It was a question I asked the doctors before. Uh, some of the people we cut, they haven't been used for many, many years. And if we, they, if we have a need, we can get them very quickly. And rather than spending the money, and I'm a business person, I don't like having thousands of people around when you don't need them. When we need them, we can get them back very quickly. For instance, we're bringing some people in tomorrow that are already in this you know, great government that we have. And very specifically for this, uh, we can build up very, very quickly, and we've already done that. I mean, we really have built up. We have a, a great staff. And uh, using Mike, uh, I'm doing that because he's in the administration, and he's very good at doing what he does and doing as it relates to this. Um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Thank please. You, Mr. President. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, far, so far, your administration... I, I picked him, but you're fine. So far, your administration is only testing less than 500 people, and health officials are questioning whether that's enough uh, comparing to other countries who have tested more than tens of thousands of people. Are you planning to test more people? Well, we're testing uh, everybody that we need to test, and we're finding very little problem, very little problem. Now... You treat this like a flu. We were, uh, in fact, I might ask one of the doctors to come up and explain it. Uh, you want to wash your hands a lot. You want to stay. If you're not feeling well, if you feel you have a flu, stay inside. Sort of quarantine yourself. Don't go outside. Uh, but there are certain steps that you can take that we won't even be necessary. You know, in many cases, when you catch this, it's very light. You don't even know there's a problem. Sometimes they just get the sniffles. Sometimes they just get something where they're not feeling quite right. And sometimes they feel really bad. But that's a little bit like the flu. It's a little like the regular flu that we have flu shots for. And we'll essentially have a flu shot for this in a fairly quick manner. Yeah, go ahead. Two weeks ago, Mr. President, your acting OMD director was, was in this room and was talking about what he expects to be GDP growth for this coming year. He said it was 3%. And we've talked about the effects of the coronavirus on the supply chain, the declines in the financial markets. Are you still confident that you'll see that kind of economic growth this no. year? We're going to have tremendously low unemployment. We're setting records in that way. In fact, the administration is, the, as you know, the lowest average unemployment of any administration in history. And our numbers are very low, very good, 3.5, 3.6. But uh, you can't really see what this does in terms of GDP. It could affect it, but that's irrelevant compared to what we're talking about. We want to make sure it's safe. Safety number one. Listen to how, listen to how focused he is on this. He will not be distracted by these, these curveball questions. We're doing great. But this will have, just like, I'll tell you what has a big impact. Boeing has a big impact. How did that happen? A year ago, all of a sudden, that happened. I think that took away a half a point to a point even. You know, it's a massive company. I think Boeing, we had the General Motors strike. That was uh, a big impact on GDP. And, of course, we're paying interest rates. I disagree with the head of the Fed. I'm not, uh, I'm not happy with uh, what that is because uh, he's kept interest rates. President Obama didn't have near the numbers, and yet, if you look at what happened, he was paying zero. We're paying interest. Now, it's more conservative, and frankly, people that put their money away are now getting a return on their money as opposed to not getting anything. But I think, you know, we're the... We're the greatest of them all. We should be paying the lowest interest rates. And when Germany and other countries are paying negative rates, meaning they're literally getting paid when they put out money. I mean, they, they borrow money and they get paid when it gets paid back. Who ever heard of this before? It's a first. 
But we don't do that. So I totally disagree with our Fed. I think our Fed has made a terrible mistake. And it would have made a big difference as good as we've done, even without the 2,000 points. And we started off at 16,000 and we'll be at 28,000 without. We're going to crack 30,000. We have had increases like nobody's seen before. uh, But we're doing well. But we have to watch. uh, We're doing well anyway, in other words, even despite the 2,000 points. It sounds like a lot and it's a lot, but it's it's very little compared to what we've gone up. Uh, But we'll be watching it very closely. But we have been hurt by General Motors. We've been hurt by Boeing. And we've hurt by, we've been hurt in my opinion, very badly. Now, now, listen to how he's been speaking this entire time compared to that debate last night. We're really a bunch of know-nothings, throwing platitudes, attacking the country, leftists, have nothing really to offer the American people, freebies, freebies, freebies. Just listen to how in control he is. Go ahead. He may be exaggerating the threat of coronavirus to hurt you politically. Rush Limbaugh the other day said uh, this has been advanced to weaponize the virus against you. You don't mean my supporters. You mean my my people that are not supporters. Right, your yeah, opponents. I agree with it. I, agree. I think, I think they are. I think, and, and I'd like it to stop. Uh, I think people know that when Chuck Schumer gets upset, and he did the same thing with a couple of trade deals that are phenomenal deals now. Everybody's acknowledged they're phenomenal deals. Before he ever saw the deal, he didn't even know we were going to make a deal. They said, what do you think of the deal with China? I don't like it. I don't like it. Uh, he talked about tariffs. I left the tariffs on, 25% on $250 billion. He said he took the tariffs off. He didn't even know the deal. And he was out there knocking it because that's a natural thing to say. But... When you're talking about especially something like this, we have to be on the same team. This is too important. We have to be on the same team. Have you seen evidence that the CDC is trying to hurt you? No, I don't think the CDC is at all. No, they've been, they've been working really well together. See, the, me- the media are looking for gotcha moments. The media are looking for their own conspiracy theories. The media really, as a group, are, uh, are such a disservice to the American people. Here we have this situation with the coronavirus. And listen to some of these questions. They're absurd. We'll be right back. in. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. press is so hostile and confrontational and trying to catch the president, trying to create a divide between his health experts and the president. There's nothing that separates the two. The president has been very logical, very rational about the things he's saying. I, I just feel the press have completely lost their way. Here we have this coronavirus. 
It's a big enough issue that the president wants to talk about it. He's surrounded by the government's experts. He's talking about it. He's as transparent as can be. He's up there. He's been up there, what, Mr. Purdue, almost an hour now. And so have the experts. And he's talked about what they're doing, what they're going to do, that this is a priority, that Schumer and Pelosi should be working with him, that everybody should be working together. This is too important to play politics with. He's a uniting figure. He's cool as a cucumber. He's in control, very temperate, going through the science, telling people what they can do in their own lives, wash your hands, and do all these other things, that simple things that you can do. And the press is hostile, looking for contradictions, looking for battles, quoting them from 2014. It's really quite appalling. The press is supposed to be giving us information that is useful to you and your family from the president and the administration. I'll be right back. The establishment's worst nightmare. Mark Levin. Call in now. 877-381-3811. That was an outstanding one-hour, virtually, press conference. Where if you listen to the president, not so much the questions later, you were informed about what's taking place. You're not panicking. Completely rational. Under control. Presidential. Irrational. Out of control. Is and will be the media and the Democrats. It's sad. They feel they benefit from a pandemic or an epidemic. They obviously do. Otherwise, why conduct yourself the way they've conducted themselves? And they'll have their media mouthpieces, some of whom are paid for, like Media Matters, some of whom are left-wing hacks, like Mediaite, others, all of CNN, all of MSNBC, all the networks, a lineup, cherry-pick what the president said, try to make him sound irrational and brash, but he was none of those things. Cool as a cucumber. Absolutely in charge. And he said, look, it's not inevitable that we'll have the spread of this virus in a significant way. But it's not inevitable that we we won't. That we're going to do everything we can to contain it. That's the issue, containment. But the liberals and the Democrats, they don't like containment. They don't like securing the borders. If they had their way, there'd be no border patrol. There'd be no ICE. Probably the airports, there'd probably be no TSA if they had their way. Or any of it. <clears throat> their policies, open border policies, attacks on law enforcement, federal, state, and local, would clearly result in the spread of this virus. President Trump's not afraid to step in and say, okay, nobody from China until we can get this thing cleared up. You think Bernie Sanders would say that? Joe Biden? Any of them? No, they wouldn't. Absolutely sensible, competent, really quite outstanding. And it makes you feel confident that the President of the United States 
is doing everything they can. But look, if it spreads, if it hits certain communities in this country, sometimes things can't be prevented. You do the very best you can. The president also said, this isn't a time to be at each other's throats. So many words with Schumer and others taking shots. Can't think of anything Schumer has done that's contributed to the well-being of this nation in all the years he's been in politics. I really can't. But for them, this is all about politics and only politics. And they hate the fact that Donald Trump is an extremely competent president who makes common-sense decisions. The never-Trumpers can't get over it either. They're all flailing around. Now, it's shocking that your home can be stolen this easily. That's the brutal lesson Deborah learned when thieves found her home's title online, forged it, and literally took ownership of her home. In an instant, thieves legally owned Deborah's home. She got evicted, spent a fortune in legal fees, trying to get it back. The FBI calls home title fraud one of the fastest growing crimes. And you don't want to be next. And that's why I urge you to protect the online title to your home with Home Title Lock. The legal documents to our homes are kept online where thieves hunt them. They forge the documents stating you sold your home. Then they borrow against your home and stick you with the payments. So you lose your home and you're stuck with the payments. No insurance. No bank can protect you. Home Title Lock protects you. Now you could already be a victim of title fraud and not know about it. You need to find out. Register your home at HomeTitleLock.com. Enter Mark. That's HomeTitleLock.com. Enter Mark for a one month of free protection. Again, HomeTitleLock.com, but you have to enter my name, Mark, for one month free at HomeTitleLock.com. One more time. It's painless. HomeTitleLock.com. Enter code MARK. Let's take some calls. David, Brink, New Jersey, the great WABC. Go. Regarding the CDC and the, uh, the pandemic at all, there's a commentary on this, Doug Sattel, S-I-T-T-E-L, on Google. And the picture of the hand over the glass, captioned, please submit, and YouTube uploads. The guy admits putting... All right, thanks for your call. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Do you, Mr. Producer? Hey, guess what? When you go on the internet and you put your hand on there and you Google this and you... Who cares? The hell does that have to do with anything? Let's continue. Murray. Los Angeles, California, he's gone. Well, who's there? And who else is there? Moses, Long Island, New York, the great WABC. Go. Hey, Mark, how you doing, brother? Long time, no speak, man. All right, brother. What's cooking? Well, um, I want to make a statement, and I want to tell you what I think is going on. First and foremost, uh, President Trump looks so sharp, and everything he just said, that whole, that whole speech was uh, so calming for me uh, mm-hmm. as far as this whole coronavirus thing is going on. Um, here's what I think is going on, because uh, I feel like this has happened to me in my life. Uh, 
I started a, a new job a few years ago, Mark, and, and when I went in there, right, they, all the guys that have been there for years, they were so tough on me and they were relentless. I mean, every single thing that I did that was even close to being wrong or anything like that, I mean, they, they put it on blast. They shined a light on every step that I took. And uh, little did they know that, uh, you know, being that I stuck it out, eventually they turned me into a pro inside and out at this company. And I think that's... Uh Uh-oh. We lost you, Moses. I think what Moses is saying, or what he was going to say there, and I'm not 100% sure, is this is what they've done with the president. The president's more of a pro than any of them are because of the way they've treated him. So uh, I think that could be true. But I think he was a pro going in, quite frankly. This is about crisis management, or potential crisis management, I should say. And the president's very good at it. Compare the way he has spoken, the calmness of what he's saying, his discussion of the issue, his connection with the American people, his use, in fact, of the scientific and medical experts in the government, Compare what you just heard to what Chuck Schumer's been doing, going to the Senate floor and screaming at the top of his lungs, or the incoherent and Tourette's-ridden Nancy Pelosi, and how she conducts herself. And they manage nothing. They can't even hold proper hearings. He said, you want to spend $8.5 billion? <clears throat> Go ahead and pass it. $8.5 billion, $4 billion, fine. Trump didn't come up with $2.5 billion, as experts did. They said they need $2.5 billion, but apparently Schumer's a bigger expert. He's a bigger expert, Schumer. So he says, okay, pass what you'll pass. We'll spend what you have. But he's been advised $2.5 billion. Okay, $8.5 billion. The left seems to think you just throw money at stuff and something will happen. It doesn't work that way. It never works that way. All right. Who do we have, Mr. Producer? KJJR, the great state of Montana. Mark, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you this evening? Well, I'm hanging in there with one lung, basically. Anyway, go ahead. So I believe that... Uh, the infrastructure problem, the medical infrastructure problem we have in the United States right now is because of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer spending so much time attacking the president of the United States that they failed to address the health care issues in the United States. They have plenty of opportunities to improve our uh, health care system, to improve the basic immunity uh, of the uh, general population, and they did not address it. Instead, this is a good point, Mark. Can you list one important substantive thing that the Democrats have done since they've controlled the House? Just one serious thing that has benefited the American people? There's nothing. Nothing. Anything that they initiated, even the trade deal the president talks about with Canada and Mexico and China, that trade deal as well. He didn't get, it, it wasn't Pelosi and the Democrats. He basically had to go to them and persuade them to support it. Do you think that Trump and, and look at the border now. He's done more to secure the border than any president in modern history. They can attack him on the left, the right, any president in modern history. We're in a better position now, not a great position, but a better position to monitor who's coming into this country. 
The Democrats talk about getting rid of the Border Patrol, getting rid of ICE, getting rid of detention centers. Tell me, how would you cope with the coronavirus if you followed the, the Democrats' prescription? You couldn't. Absolutely. No way. Absolutely not. Do you think that the $8 billion that Schumer is pushing is somehow he's recognizing that they failed to build the infrastructure, and so now they're desperately trying to do something? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he's just trying to one-up the president. What? Tell me something. Where was Chuck Schumer two months ago? Why didn't he propose $8.5 billion two months ago? Don't they have hearings? Isn't that their legislative function? Don't they appropriate money? Where was, where was Nancy Pelosi two months ago? I'll tell you where both of them were. They were busy with impeachment and trying to remove the president of the United States. And they have to be held to account for their conduct. That's right. All right, my friend. Excellent call. We'll be right back. You know, posted rates have gone up again. Thankfully, Stamps.com eases the pain with big discounts off post office retail rates. It's really a wonderful service if you think about it. With Stamps.com, you save $0.05 cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off shipping rates. That kind of savings really adds up, especially for small businesses. Plus, Stamps.com is completely online, which saves you time. No more inconvenient trips to the post office. With Stamps.com, you get discounted postage rates that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder. Over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. Right now, you, my listeners, you get a special offer that includes, listen to this, a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. I want to encourage you to try this. And here's how you do it. It's simple. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Bunker, B-U-N-K-E-R, stamps.com, enter Bunker. Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter the word Bunker. You know, there's so many ways that you can do your usual business but save money. That's why I bring companies like Stamps.com or American Finance and others. Actually, it improves your way of life and saves you a lot of money. I think that's important. All right. Let's see who else we have here. I'm moving quickly. Donna, Frederick, Maryland, the great WMAL. Go. Hi, Mark. I hope you're feeling better. I just want to say, you know, with respect to the press, they ask the same question like 10 different ways, expecting a different result. No surprise there. But it's all just common sense. It was such a contrast between Trump's calm demeanor and the wild press with their accusations. How about the wild Schumer and Pelosi? Shane. Just out there making allegations. They're just lying. Oh, it's ridiculous. And I want to ask you something. Yes. How do we end up with czars in America? They, yeah. they mentioned that twice in that conference. I'm like, I don't remember ever electing a czar. How on earth did we end up with them? 
I don't know. Remember Obama kept the naming czar after czar. Remember all the czars he had? Yeah, I was thinking it probably ended up with him. You know, another communist fight to death. But they don't like czars, actually. They like commissars, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Absolutely. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like at least we know the disease could go either way. But the big takeaway is finally, after reading everything on this, on every medium, Mark, I feel comfortable knowing that we will at least do our best with preparing the people, educating our people, and having the best... And and Donna, before you go, here's the thing. If you're really concerned about this, seriously, and I don't want you to go and run to Walmart or Target or CVS or any of the rest, Walgreens, get a box of those masks, should the occasion arise. Make sure you wash your hands thoroughly. Make sure you take the wet ones with you, or whatever you call them, when you go on a plane and wipe down the, the seatbelt buckle and wipe down the, uh, the tray. Do a few basic things like that. If you see somebody's coughing and hacking, stay away from them. President Kennedy's right. In a lot of public places, you have hand railings. Try not to touch them. There are things you can do in your own life that are really quite thoughtful and minor, which probably will help you. It'll help you not get the flu, as an example. So there are things you can do. If that's what you want to do, go ahead and do them. There are smart things you can do. There are things the government can do, which is try to vet who's coming into the country, try to limit people who are coming into the country from certain areas. You know, the president tried that with terrorism, and he was attacked. The president has now done this with the virus, and originally he was attacked again. He was called anti-Chinese, bringing up the, the yellow scare again. I read somewhere. It was unbelievable. And, uh, and he's none of these things. And what he's trying to do, secure the border, make sure people who come in planes are coming from places where they, they may not have these illnesses. He's doing what you can do. It's a complex, you know, diverse society. We have big borders. So you do what you can do on containment. At the same time, the medical people and the scientists are working feverishly, no pun intended, of course, to find a, a vaccine and other forms of treatment. What else can a president do? Exactly. I think he's doing the best he can, considering the circumstances. And if other people accuse him otherwise, I think that's being really unfair. But nothing what, what has Chuck Schumer done? Yeah, exactly. Zero. Nancy Pelosi. What, what hearing has Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi attended? Name one. I can't think of a thing. Now, and they've one. had some hearings in Congress, but they haven't attended any of them. No. It's, it's a joke. It really two, is a joke. Two months ago, did either of them propose $8.5 billion? No. And they get on the floor of the Senate, and she gets in front of a microphone, and they just start yelling like mental patients. The president has no plan. He's not prepared. Well, if you heard him tonight and you heard his staff tonight, they, are plan- they have a plan, and they are prepared. doesn't mean you can contain it completely. Doesn't mean there won't be an outbreak. I'll give you an example. We have sanctuary cities all over this country, don't we? Yes, and they're trying to do that in my country. <clears throat> but hold on a second. That's not my point. We have sanctuary cities all over this country. And so these people aren't being vetted. We don't know if they're ill. We have Democrat cities, metropolitan areas, where this thing can spread very, very fast. They're protecting people who are here illegally. Some of them are criminals. The feds can't even get to them. Well, isn't that a health problem, as it turns out? Of course it is. All right, Donna, thank you very much. 
So what exactly are the Democrats doing as a matter of policy to try and contain this? I'm serious. We know they want to spend $8.5 billion. What about the borders? What about sanctuary cities? What about vetting people who are coming here? What about supporting law enforcement? What about? I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, this final hour of the podcast is sponsored exclusively by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we care about, faith, family, and freedom. Thank you for listening, and please support AMAC. And you can become a member at amac.us slash join. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 Okay, we're going to move along. Another victory for the president in court today. Court rules Trump can withhold funds to states with sanctuary cities. Associated Press, Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Manhattan made the ruling this morning, overturning a lower court decision, said the federal government had to release law enforcement grants to states. They refused to cooperate with the federal government when it came to criminal illegal immigrants. Now, this lower court decision, just so you understand, is really appalling because forever the federal government, when in the hands of liberal Democrats, has used the power of federal grants and contracts to control state and local policy. Yet here, the lower court says no. So the circuit court, the second circuit, said yes, that it could. And the states that, that it oversees, the circuit, is New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Virginia, and Washington. Actually, that's wrong. Virginia's in the Fourth Circuit. But that's all right. And um, Washington, D.C. is in its own circuit, the D.C. circuit. But none of that really matters. What happened was that the states and city sued the U.S. government after the Justice Department, as AP writes, announced in 2017 that it would withhold grant money from cities and states until they gave federal immigration authorities access to jails and provide advance notice when someone in the country is here illegally and going to be released. This is what I was talking about When you think of these liberal Democrat policies, you could never secure your border. You could never vet people properly to determine if, in fact, they are carrying a contagious virus or other disease. So these cities and states have actively prevented the feds from getting access to criminal legal aliens and deporting them. Now, the Second Circuit says it can withhold funds, and that's good. 
It should. So that's a victory, right? You probably haven't heard a hell of a lot about it. Want to hear another one about judges? If I don't tell you, nobody will. This is from Long Crime, a Dan Abrams production. There's a lot of Dan Abrams productions out there. He's the legal analyst for ABC News. He created a left-wing hack site called Mediaite. He's got a site called Long Crime. He's got a couple TV shows. It's amazing how far you can go when you have no talent. Remember this Federal Judges Association? Remember how appalling this Federal Judges Association and their judge, Cynthia Rufi? They decided they were going to have an emergency meeting. Remember that, Mr. Producer? They were so concerned, weren't they? That the president interfering with the rule of law. And I pointed out, of course, the president hadn't interfered with the rule of law. Well, it was very strange. Even at Law and Justice, a left-wing site, they say, it's a little weird that the Federal Judicial Association or the Federal Judges Association was getting involved in a highly political matter pending before the judiciary, and that would be the Roger Stone case. And the president of that group, U.S. District Judge Cynthia Rufi, said, we just couldn't wait until April to discuss matters of this importance. Seemed pretty obvious what she meant. But U.S. Circuit Court Judge Jose Cabranes, also a member of that association, had some words of warning for his judicial colleagues. He wrote in an email to Judge Rufi that was eventually widely reported. He said, I urge you to come off this precipice and to withdraw from active politics in the name of federal judges of this country. If you don't do so, you risk confusing the public about the role of the courts in our constitutional order, thereby deepening the crisis and confidence in our institutions. This is what I have said about Judge Jackson, Amy Berman Jackson, who has done grave damage to the judiciary because of her lack of integrity and impartiality. So now, they write, though the FJA is conducting the mother of all backpedals, insisting that the speculation that the impromptu meeting was about Trump and Stone and Bill Barr was entirely erroneous. Wow. Wow, isn't that amazing? According to the FJA, we got it all wrong. As they write in Long Crime, it's emailed to members, said, President Rufe, Judge Rufe, issued no public statements or press release of the originally scheduled meeting, nor did she solicit press contact. It goes on. At no time was there any intent to involve the FGA in any political controversy or in any pending case. Well, they're lying, of course. That's exactly what they did, and they got all this attention and all the rest. And notice how little attention there is to this. If I hadn't told you about this, would you have heard about it? That this Federal Judges Association all of a sudden says, no, 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 we didn't, have a, we didn't want an emergency meeting. We weren't concerned about the president interfering. We weren't concerned about the attorney general pulling back from the line prosecutors. No, 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 we weren't concerned about any of that. Everybody just misconstrued this. 
And of course, law and crime goes on to stupidly and wrongly conclude that, of course, the president did try to interfere. But that's them. They're morons. They can't control themselves. The relevant aspect of this is that now this association has said that we misunderstood them. We misread them. Okay, we'll take it. But we didn't. Whether it's Sotomayor, whether it's Ginsburg, whether it's Jackson, they're extremely partisan, extremely political, and extremely partial. If you're a party in front of any of these judges, you cannot expect a fair break. You cannot expect an honest reading of the law and an application of the facts. And when you raise that with Judge Jackson, she freaks out. She has a temper tantrum in the form of a, a fifth grader's written opinion in defense of herself. Pretty amazing, really. Bernie Sanders. Well, Bernie Sanders has said a lot of things, most of them outrageous. Bernie Sanders, you know, believes that illegal aliens should get health care. That it is a human right. That the border should be open. That there shouldn't be detention centers. That we should eliminate ICE. Wow. What a nut. But he didn't always think this way. He was on CNN in 2007. And among, well, it was Lou Dobbs who was interviewing him. Bernie Sanders had a very different view about illegal immigration, and his view back then, 13 years ago, was identical to the view of the big labor unions and the civil rights organizations in this country, including Latino civil rights organizations. And what am I talking about? Well, listen, cut five, go. And that gets us to the immigration issue. If poverty is increasing and if wages are going down, I don't know why we need millions of people to be coming into this country as guest workers who will work for lower wages than American workers and drive wages down even lower than they are right now. And as we know, the principal industries uh, which uh, hire the bulk of illegal aliens, that is uh, construction, landscaping, those are all industries in which wages are declining. I don't right. hear that discussed on the Senate well, floor you, by the no. proponents of this amnesty legislation. That's right. They have no good response. I just read something today that a lot of people coming into this country are coming in as lifeguards. I guess we can't find, that's right, we can't find American workers to work as lifeguards. And the H, H-1B program has teachers, elementary school teachers. Well, you know. Yeah, and that H-1B program, uh, we got to watch uh, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy sit there with the sole witness uh, being one Bill Gates, the world's richest man, telling him he wanted unlimited H-1B visas, uh, obviously uninformed as to the fact that uh, uh, 7 out of 10 visas under the H-1B program go to Indian corporations that are outsourcing those positions to American corporations in this country, and that 4 out of 5 of those jobs that are supposed to be high-skilled jobs are actually category one jobs that's right which is low skill well you raise a good point and that this whole immigration guest worker concept is the other side of the trade issue on one hand you have large multinationals trying to shut down plants in america move to china and on the other hand you have the service industry bringing in low-wage workers from abroad the result is the same middle class gets shrunken and wages go down you know i wish i had this before the 
caucuses in Nevada, Mr. Producer, where some huge percentage of the Latino population in Nevada voted in the caucuses for Bernie the Red Sanders. I wish we had this before. We did not. And so the position Bernie Sanders has taken with respect to the border is really pretty close to the president's position. But not today. Because Bernie Sanders believes in open borders. Back then he believed in closed borders. This was the same position back then of the AFL-CIO. The Teamsters. The United Farm Workers. The same position of the Democrat Party left. For the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part. They're bringing in all these guest workers, illegal and legal, would drive down the wages of American workers even lower than they are now. Now, the Democrat Party is completely reversed course because they see the effects of immigration, basically open immigration, has on their politics and their party. You turn Colorado blue. You turn California blue. You're close to turning Texas purple and on to blue, game over. You're turning Florida more and more blue. You've taken Virginia. You're actually in the precipice of taking Georgia. And so what the Democrat Party has figured out, screw people on low wages. We'll just get new people. More and more of whom will vote for the Democrat Party. Now, you know damn well if the new wave, constant wave of immigrants in this country were voting for Republicans, the Democrats would continue with Bernie Sanders' view and the old AFL-CIO and liberal Democrat view, which is immigrants are driving down the wages of American workers. But since the Democrat Party now relies on these people, to change red states to purple and purple states to blue, then they switch their position. They even create and defend so-called sanctuary cities and sanctuary states. And now this is where we are today. You see, we live and breathe for the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party. They want to raise your taxes. They want to regulate you to death. They want to control who lives in what neighborhood, who goes to what school. We say it's the government. It's the government in the hands of the Democrats. The Democrat Party wants to rule us and rule over us while pretending to support, quote-unquote, democracy. I'll be right back. Lovin. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest-growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. 
More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. Bottom of the hour, we have scheduled a special guest who I don't believe has ever been on this program, Martha McCallum, you know, of Fox News, and her magnificent book on Iwo Jima, and a family member of hers who, well, I'll let her tell the story, fought on Iwo Jima. Family member of mine fought on Iwo Jima. My grandfather, my mother's father. While most of those who fought on Iwo Jima were quite young, my grandfather was among the oldest. He was 34 at the time. But she has spent a lot of time researching the Battle of Iwo Jima. She's gone to Iwo Jima. And we want to give her book and her some attention here because they're both very important. You know, there's a big election next week, March 2nd. It's a big election next week in America, Mr. Producer. What day is March 2nd? Is that a Tuesday? I think it is. So you're going to have this big Tuesday election among Democrats. Excuse me, March 2nd is a Monday. I apologize. March 3rd, you're going to have this big election among Democrats. And of course, Saturday is South Carolina. But in between the two, Monday, March 2nd, there is a huge election in the country of Israel. Whether or not the Israelis are going to elect Benjamin Netanyahu, their greatest prime minister in my opinion, or elect an individual, Benny Gantz, who has trouble speaking in complete sentences, much like Joe Biden, and a party blue and white that stands for everything and stands for nothing, that's trying to attract more conservative Likud voters while at the same time trying to bring out as many Arabs to vote for it as possible despite the fact that these Arab parties oppose the state of Israel. What kind of coalition is that? And what kind of a country wants to be led by a party like that? We'll talk about it more during the course of the week. We'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. 
And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. Mark Levin, America's Paul Revere. Call him now at 877-381-3811. Martha McCollum, how are you, my friend? I'm great, Mark. How are you? Very, very well. I don't know if you've ever been on this radio program, but it will be a pain. I have not. It'll be painless for you. Um, It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, you've written a remarkable book, Unknown Valor, about the Battle of Iwo Jima, about uh, your mother's teenage cousin, Harry Gray, about the history of the battle, about the history, really, in many ways, of the battle in the Pacific. It's a fascinating book. How long did it take you to write this book? Because you did a lot of research. Yeah, it took um, it took close to three years from the very beginning until finishing it. I started the process with uh, by going up to Clifton, New York, and sitting down with my Aunt Nancy, who is Harry's sister, and just kind of pouring through all of it with her because I had heard so much growing up, and my mom had always shared Harry's letters with us and I just found them so moving as a teenager. They just broke my heart reading them. And um, I just really wanted to dig into the story. And then when I started doing that, I realized that to write the book, I really needed to start with Pearl Harbor and weave in these stories and tell the story of the Pacific Theater, at least the path that was taken um, by by these Marines uh, through the Solomons and the Gilberts and the Marshalls and up into the Marianas. So um, I, I wanted to weave it all together. It's, 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 that's the kind of book that I love to read when there are sort of personal stories woven in with history that help bring it to life. So that, that's what I was trying to do. Tell us about Harry Gray. He was an 18-year-old, um, just had graduated from Arlington, Massachusetts, had a girlfriend that he met in a bowling alley, um, who he was really in love with, according to his friends that I have since gotten to know, who he was with overseas. And he was a bright guy. He was an artist. He loved to draw in his sketchbooks. And he was sort of the man of the house. His father had passed away when he was 12 years old. And he really looked up to my grandfather, who was like a dad to him. He had a great sense of humor, and he was a little bit mischievous. And uh, he had some dear friends. And you know, he was really, Mark, like so many other young men across the country. And, and in, in telling this, I want, I think a lot of families have a Harry Gray, you know, somebody for whom they, the family feels a sense of loss and a sense of pride. And on their family tree, you know, there's a line that just ends with these people. And they didn't get to get married. They didn't get to have children. And I think it's important to keep their memory alive. And I wanted to kind of hopefully inspire other people to learn more about the people who are, are like Harry Gray in their own families, because there's so many of them. And Harry Gray was 18. What happened to Harry Gray? So Harry went to Paris Island, uh, went into training with so many other Marines, and then he traveled across the country to California, you know, wrote a letter home uh, November 3rd that he was shipping off. So he spent that Thanksgiving and that Christmas of 1944 on the USS Rochambeau that took off from California, headed to Guam. And then they continued to train. They did some work in Guam for a while. And then it was time to ship out to Iwo Jima. And, of course, you know, these were kids from 
Gulfport, Mississippi, and Arlington, Massachusetts, and Lockport, New York. They had no idea where Iwo Jima was. It's an eight-square-mile patch of island in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, and it, it was a rough place. It was a really rough place. And it was his first experience uh, going towards combat, so it was a, a, a tough awakening for him. But he wrote these letters home trying to sort of put everyone's mind at ease, essentially, um, I have one brief one that I could, I could read. It says, Dear Mom and Family, how is everyone? I'm fine except a slight cold, which I should be rid of soon. I suppose you're wondering where I am. Well, the place is Iwo. I've been here a week, and believe me, it's no picnic. I'm praying to get off this place and soon, but it looks like another week yet. I've not been to the front lines, but it sure has been hot where I am. The first few days I was dodging mortar shells and artillery every minute, and now it seems to be mostly over. Our marine artillery is firing over our heads continually right now, and it's bang and whistling of shells. Two other fellows and myself are in a hole, and you can bet it's very secure. We've worked hard by putting bags all around it and on the roof. We had one air raid, Mom, and you can bet I was plenty scared. The living conditions are good, and the chow is surprisingly good, and plenty of it. I can only write one letter a day, so please tell Dot I'll write her tomorrow. Please don't worry. Everything is under control. Well, Mom, I'll go into it more about this place later, and we'll write every chance I get. Bob and George are here. All my love, Harry. And mm-hmm. George is someone who wrote a letter to my grandfather after Harry was killed, uh, telling him how brave Harry was and how close they were, and that they had played football back together in Massachusetts and opposing high schools before they went overseas. And I didn't think George was still alive, but toward the end of writing the book, I went through my fi- my files on him one more time, and I found a piece of paper that said that he was looking for his his military records and that they'd been lost in a move from New England down to Florida and there was an address in Florida. So the first thing I did was, you know, start pulling obituaries for George Colburn because I assumed that he was no longer with us. He would be 94 years old, but there was an address and there was no obituary. And by nine o'clock the next morning, I was on the phone with George. And when I called him and I said, you know, hi, Mr. Colburn, this is Martha McCallum and Harry Gray's niece. He just went silent. And then he said to me, Martha, I think about Harry all the time, mm. and I think he would have lived a better life than I did. Mm. And then we just launched into this wonderful conversation. He's just the sweetest man, and I've gotten to know him, which has been wonderful. Well, I personally want to thank you for doing this. My grandfather, my mother's father, fought at Iwo Jima. Did he? He was 34 years old. He was the old, one of the oldest Marines. Yeah. And my father... <clears throat> really signed up. He didn't know him, obviously. He was 17. He went in the Army Air Corps. But my grandfather fought at Guam and Iwo Jima, and he signed up really? with my great-uncle, who fought at Guadalcanal. And oh, for wow. you to spend the amount of time that you have writing this fabulous book, taking time out of your life to go to this island, which is in the middle of hell. It is yeah. nowhere. And to see where these men fought, where they couldn't even get their feet in the, in the ash. And, That's right. And we bombarded that island over and over again. But the mm-hmm. Japanese had dug in, hadn't they? They had. Um, they said, you know, that the Japanese weren't on Iwo Jima. They were in it. And they had dug 11 miles of tunnels into the island. And some of the people who fought there that I spoke with said, you know, I, I never saw one Japanese soldier. Um, they were in the island and shooting from sniper positions that were really well concealed. And they were determined, uh, they didn't think they were going to win ultimately, but they were determined to cause an enormous loss of life on the American side. General 
Kurobayashi said, take 10 American lives before you lose your own. And they weren't very fond of taking prisoners either, were they? No. Uh, you know, that, that was, at that point, that was not something that they were doing. And, um, you know, a lot of the Japanese, they didn't want to survive the island either. So after they killed as many people as they could, they generally took their own lives because it was just, it was the Bushido spirit. It was considered, you know, a shameful thing to go home from the war. This is a remarkable book. It's not just an everyday book where a host comes up and says, hey, I wrote a book. This is a very thoroughly researched book. It'll pull at your heartstrings. Uh, Martha McCallum, the book is Unknown Valor. I want to encourage you to go to my social sites, Mark Levin Show, Facebook, Mark Levin Show, Twitter. Go directly to Amazon, any major bookstore. But you ought to order it tonight and take a look at it. And, you know, one of the great things in my view, Martha, that's missing in this country is history. These battles, every one of these battles, the the loss of life, what these men and women did, it could be another battle. But Iwo Jima was particularly horrific, wasn't it? It was. Um, Robert Sherrod, who was a Time magazine uh, war correspondent, was on a lot of these islands. And he said, I never saw the things that I saw at Iwo Jima uh, on these other islands because... You know, they waited, Kurobayashi waited until the divisions were up high on the beaches before they sort of um, let loose on, on the Marines who were on those beaches. And because there was such a long aerial bombardment, the Marines started to think that maybe it had worked, you know. Um, and But about 30 minutes into that D-Day invasion, uh, they realized that there were... There were many, many, 21,000 Japanese soldiers uh, with, uh, with snipers aimed at them and mortars aimed at them. Hmm. I wonder how many uh, veterans from that battle are left. Do they have any idea? You know, it's really it's hard to say. I've asked that question of the uh, Iwo Jima America Association, and we have a gathering, actually, that's happening this Saturday in Arlington, Virginia, and we're trying to get as many of these veterans together as we can. And I think there's going to be more than 50 of them attending. And George Coburn, who I met, and Charlie Gubish, who's 101 from Pennsylvania, and their families and my Aunt Nancy are all going to gather at this on Saturday so that these men can spend some time together and we can honor them on this 75th anniversary. So I I, I will ask them again. I haven't gotten a good answer. I, I I think it's really hard to know. But I was surprised, actually, at how many of them were. Um, we're still around, and the ones who are around are pretty, pretty spry and pretty impressive and so humble. Um, you know, they're just really great men. You, you point out even, even your little facts, many things I didn't know, your little facts about the men who raised the flag. When did they raise that flag, that famous memorial at uh, Arlington, and what happened to them? So the flag raising happened on, on D plus four, so it was the fifth day of the battle. And they had surrounded Suribachi, the, the 23rd Marines had su- surrounded Suribachi, uh, and were told to kind of scale the side and, and clear out, you know, any positions that were still there. And um, they went up, there were actually two flag raisings. The first flag raising was a smaller flag, and then uh, one of the commanders from down on the beach said, you know, no, bring that one down and let's, go, let's get a big flag up there. So the second flag raisers were the group of five that you see in that famous statue. Uh, in Arlington, that that is the United States Marine Corps monument, um, and of those six men who raised that second flag, within days, three of them were dead, hmm. and the killing went on for 31 more days. Hmm. Thousands of Marines lost their lives after that flag was raised, but of course, it became this really an inspirational image, 
and iconic image of, of World War II in the Pacific. Well, Martha, it's been a pleasure. I wish we could talk longer. Folks, seriously, you're going to get a book. This is a book. It's a very, very important book. It's written beautifully. Thank you, Mark. Unknown Valor. Go to Amazon.com. If you're on my social sites, Mark Levin Show Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter, we're linking to it right there. Go ahead and grab a copy for you and really more for your kids so they know exactly what took place. Good luck with this book and God bless you. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate talking with you. And I'm so glad to hear the story about your family member there, too. Uh, And I I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. I truly appreciate it. You too. Be well. She is a class act. And I've met her once at Rush Limbaugh's wedding, as I recall. Nicest person in the world. Excuse me. And a real journalist to boot. But this is a very, very compelling book. Unknown Valor, a story of family, carriage, and sacrifice from Pearl Harbor to Iwo Jima. It's a history book. It's also a, a personal memoir in ways. And she speaks for her lost mother's cousin, uh, Harry Gray. It's very, very sad. But that battle was unbelievable. And I bet you it's not taught in many schools. But I want to encourage you to get a copy, Unknown Valor. Again, I link directly to it. Amazon, on my social sites. So if you happen to be there, happen to be hanging around, grab your copy or go to directly to Amazon.com. This book should be the number one book. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. Unknown Valor is a tremendous book about the battle in the Pacific, the battles, but particularly Iwo Jima. And I have to say, Martha McCullum is a wonderful writer, wonderful writer. She talks about her mother's cousin who was 18 and perished. Unknown Valor is the book. It's particularly close to my heart since my grandfather, my mother's father, fought there as well, among other places. Took her three years to research and write the book. She's actually gone to Iwo Jima. I've been invited, but I have to find time to actually go. But she did. And so it's a very special book, particularly for those of you who want to learn more and those of you who want your kids to learn more. I want to encourage you to get a copy of it. Go to Amazon.com or go to Mark Levin Show Facebook, 
Mark Levin Show Twitter, you know, millions of you are there. If you happen to be there, hit the link, get your copy, lickety split, be sent to you, I have it tomorrow or the next day. We need to learn about our history. Young people need to learn about our history. That's part of the problem, I feel. And when you have real journalists like Martha or Brett Baer or Brian Kilmeade writes outstanding books, a lot of people do, but with a historical perspective, I really think you should get your copies. This one in particular, as I say, is close to my heart, so you might want to check it out. Unknown Valor, Martha McCallum. Mr. Producer, are these callers, real callers here? Good. Well, I just lost my computer, so give me one. Stu in Connecticut. Stu, you fought in Iwo Jima? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. You fought in Iwo Jima? Yes, sir. 93 years young today. (coughs) Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord, Stu. Yep. Can I ask you a question? This is really a shot in the dark. Way out in the dark. Did you ever know a Marine by the name of Mo Rubin? No, I did not. All right. Just was curious. Oh, sorry. No, that's all right. And you're doing... He's a friend of yours. He's got to be a friend of mine. I'll tell you that. He was my grandfather. Oh, is that right? How are you doing, Stu? Well, a few years back, I called and said we're about to lose our house. Yeah? I told you God had everything under control. You sent me... A gift. No, no. Which, Just tell me about it. Tell me about your house. We're still yeah. in it. You got your house? We're still in it, and I'm healthy. Thank God. Do you need keep it? me going. Wow. I'm a, I'm a survivor, I'll tell you. But I did take the prisoner on him. <clears throat> yeah. He was in a cave on the t- side of Mount Suribachi. He was sitting up there, and we looked up and saw him. About four of us went up. I was the only one that didn't have a weapon. He kissed my feet. He wanted to surrender to me because he figured he was going to be tortured and shot by the other guys. Mm-hmm. We, we brought him down, saved his life. But did not want to surrender. That was against the emperor. You never, you never forget, do you, Stu? No. Well, I, I, I want to get Stu's address and phone number again, Mr. Producer, okay? Don't let him go. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. And God bless each and every one of you, especially those of you who have put your lives on the line for us. Foreign and domestic. Thank you. See you tomorrow. God bless. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.